Last week we began with the very first term of communion. That first term of communion reads this way, an acknowledgement of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God and the alone infallible rule of faith and practice. And we divided the study on the first term of communion into eight categories, which we call attributes of Scripture. We considered the necessity of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. And this evening we want to continue with our study of the attributes of Scripture by by considering the perspicuity of Scripture. This would be the fifth attribute. Uh, The uh, word perspicuity simply comes from uh, two Latin words, per meaning through and specere meaning to look. And so it has the idea of looking through, being able to understand uh, the Word of God is clear, It's clearly understood by those who have been given the Spirit of God so that they can understand all that is necessary for salvation and sanctification. Now, this particular attribute of Scripture is spoken of in chapter 1 of the Confession of Faith and the seventh section. I'll read that and then we'll talk further about the perspicuity of Scripture. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain into a sufficient understanding of them. In other words, this particular attribute of Scripture is that the Uh, You do not need a seminary education to be able to open the Bible, to be able to understand what God is saying with regard to your salvation in Christ. The Spirit of God does illuminate the mind and the understanding of God's people. Those who receive the Spirit of God have sufficient understanding of the Word of God. We read in 1st, Corinthians chapter 2, for example, the difference between those who are unregenerate and those who are regenerate. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we find these words beginning with verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit for the spirit searcheth all things yea the deep things of god for what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him 
Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So we see here the difference between the natural man, the unregenerate man, and the spiritual man, the one who is born of the Holy Spirit. He understands the things of God, whereas the natural man does not receive them, does not understand them. They are foolishness unto him. <clears throat> now, this view is quite different. The view that's presented in the Confession of Faith is quite different from the view that's taught by the Church of Rome. Rome teaches quite the opposite. Not only is the Bible a closed book to unbelievers, as we have just noted from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but Rome teaches that the Bible is a closed book to believers as well. The Roman Catholic Church, meaning the Pope, the councils, the fathers, the bishops, with their apostolic authority, believe themselves to be the only human agency that can infallibly interpret and can understand the teaching of Scripture. Now, this is why, again, I think we mentioned this last week, this is why the Bible was banned by Rome. It was a a book that the general populace was not to read. It did not have the imprimatur of the church. The common people were not allowed to read the Bible. The Bible was chained to the pulpit, or even at times the Bible was publicly burned because they did not want the ordinary believer to read the Bible because they could not understand it. They would not interpret it properly. And therefore, it has been historically the case that Rome has opposed all Bible translation organizations. Uh, getting the word of God out uh, to, uh, to the people in various languages and this type of thing. Uh, only as it is properly interpreted. It sounds like when you've talked perhaps with uh, Mormons and they they... Uh, say, well, the Bible is true insofar as it is properly interpreted and, and they basically then make the Bible to mean whatever they want it to mean. But in, in a, a similar way, uh, you or myself cannot properly understand the Bible, says Rome, without uh, the, the church interpreting it for us. <clears throat> And so everything the church teaches, therefore, 
is not explicitly believed because you have read it from the Word of God and because you have come to believe it based on what God's Word says, but everything in Rome is therefore implicitly believed because the church says so. Not because God's Word says so, but this is what the church says the Bible means. And on that basis, you believe, or the, those who are in the Romish church believe, upon the authority of the church, not upon the authority of God's Word. The Baltimore Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, question 1328, asks, how can we know the true meaning of the doctrines contained in the Bible? The answer given, we can know the true meaning from the Catholic Church, which has been authorized by Jesus Christ to explain his doctrines, which has been, uh, and which is preserved from error. That is the Catholic Church, which is preserved from error in its teachings by the special assistance of the Holy Ghost. And so, the Church of Rome, in effect, stands above the Word of God. The Church of Rome stands above the Word of God because it says that the Church gave birth to the Scriptures and not the Scriptures having given birth to the Church. It is, according to Rome, the fact that the church brought forth the scriptures. That's not the Protestant view. The Protestant view is that, rather, the scriptures, the word of God, is what God uses to bring forth life in a human soul by his spirit, which is then the beginning of the church. God speaks His Word. God writes His Word. Men believe His Word because of the Spirit's working in their life, giving them faith and knowledge. And then, when a person is born again, is regenerate, then the church comes into being according to the Protestant doctrine. <clears throat> and so the Church of Rome says its interpretation is absolutely authoritative. Now, what about the Bereans in Acts 17.11? There we find that the apostles themselves in proclaiming the word of truth to, to the believers in Berea I'm reading from Acts 17.11. Paul and Silas had left, actually fled Thessalonica, and they uh, traveled to Berea. And here we find these words, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Why are they called noble-minded? Why are they considered to, to have done something good? Because they searched the scriptures even to, to judge or even to test 
whether the apostles themselves were being faithful to the Old Testament scriptures, which they had obviously copies of. And so this is the basis on which they are called noble. Uh, again, we are commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, we're not to throw away our uh, intuitive ability, our discernment. We're not to throw away those particular abilities that God has given to us, our mind, when we become Christians or when we come into the church. The Apostle Paul, in closing this letter to the Thessalonians, says in verse uh, 21, chapter 5, Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. We could also say abstain from all appearance of error as well, because error, false teaching, is evil. Prove all things. And we find many of those kinds of commands throughout the Scripture that we are to prove them. Well, you can't hardly prove them if you simply accept what the church says without investigating, without reading, without going to the Word of God. And so we find that they have completely uh, taken that authority upon themselves. Now, the confession states that the Word of God, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, is understandable. Now, apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit uh, making us able to understand the Word of God, we will not understand it. <clears throat> and so this particular section in the Confession of Faith, the perspicuity of Scripture, teaches that the Word of God is for all of God's people, from the youngest to the oldest. It's for all of God's people to, to love and appreciate, to know. It's not just for an elite group within the church. It is not only for those who have formal Bible training. It is for the common farmer. It is for uh, the mother at home. It is for the children. It is for all. Does that mean because the Word of God is, is something that all of God's people can love and appreciate that we no longer need pastors and teachers? No, it does not mean that. Because God has given to His church in Ephesians 4.11 these gifts. These are not temporary gifts, whereas we find in Ephesians 4.11 we find the gifts of, of a prophet and apostle and evangelist. Uh, these are temporary gifts. These were gifts uh, which God gave at that particular point of time to be able to advance the gospel with signs and wonders, with, with uh, immediate revelation from God. And so these gifts have passed, but the other two gifts that are mentioned there, pastors and teachers, 
are gifts that are permanent within the church. That God intends to continuously use within the church to edify, to build up his people until Jesus Christ returns. However, the authority that pastors and teachers have is not an absolute authority. It is not an infallible authority. It is a declarative authority, meaning simply that their authority rests in what they declare. And if they do not declare the word of God, they do not have authority to bind anyone's conscience. But when they do declare the word of God, they have that authority. It is not them that binds people's consciences. It is, in fact, the word of God. And if that were not the case, then again, there would be no one required to come and listen to preaching. On what basis do we believe that God commands God's people to come and to hear faithful preaching from his ministers? Only because the preaching is agreeable to the word of God. Only because it is consistent with the word of God. It carries the sense and the meaning of what God says in his word. And so, very uh, clearly, the preacher is only to preach what God says. Not his own thoughts, uh, not his own ideas. No one is to be innovative in the pulpit. No one is to be creative in the pulpit. We should desire the old paths and walk therein and to preach according to what God has said. And so that is where the authority of ministers comes from. It comes from the Lord God and the word which the minister faithfully proclaims. Before we leave this this uh, attribute of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, let me note also that uh, the, the confession of faith does make it clear all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. In other words, we are at various degrees of sanctification. You may understand something in the Word of God that may totally slip by me, vice versa. Uh, furthermore, even as I read the Word of God, there are certain portions that will not or may not appear as clear to me as other portions of Scripture. Certain portions of Scripture I may uh, very clearly understand what God is saying, but other places I may scratch my head and say, I really need to pray and I need to study as to what God is saying in this particular passage. Now, that's not to say just because you or myself have to scratch our head and say, I'm not sure what God is saying at that point. That we cannot, doesn't mean we cannot come to understand what God is saying at that point. We need to seek the Lord God we need to be faithful in studying the scriptures. We as well can learn a great deal from 
those pastors and teachers of the church who have preceded us. In other words, again, not only do we benefit from pastors and teachers who are presently living, but we benefit from pastors and teachers who have preceded us. These are forefathers in the faith. And perhaps due to their level of sanctification, God has given them understanding that we don't have. Well, we must be willing, if there certainly is a consensus amongst faithful forefathers, that's something we should stand up and, and listen to. We should take a careful note uh, about that. We shouldn't just slough it off and say, well, I don't listen to man at all. I only listen to God. Uh, people who have that particular attitude, I think, will be continuously reinventing the wheel. In other words, they will uh, have to start from scratch, uh, with, uh, with no confession of faith, uh, with no uh, understanding of God's word, and, and build up from there. But I think that when we do see the benefit of, of pastors and teachers and how God has given the church these uh, very gifted men, we can benefit greatly from uh, them as well. Always comparing, again, they're, they're not uh, uh, superior to the Word of God. They're not equivalent to the Word of God. They are subordinate. And they are only authoritative insofar as they do articulate what God teaches. Now, why are, uh, why are we in that state that, that we uh, don't fully understand all of God's Word? Why are we in this position why do some who seem to be very pious, very godly people, why are there uh, disagreements uh, amongst people in regard to areas of doctrine and truth? Well, uh, we know from the Word of God that Hebrews 5.11 says <clears throat> that uh, you ought to be teachers by now, speaking to the Hebrew Christians, uh, and the reason that they were not teachers at the time that they should have been is the writer of the book of Hebrews says that you are dull of hearing. You are dull of hearing. You have become somewhat calloused to the word of God. You see, every time that God gives us truth and we turn our backs on that truth, what we end up doing is building up a callus over our mind, our soul. And there is a kind of judicial, even though we are seeking perhaps in many areas to be faithful, there is a judicial blindness that God brings upon Christians and upon churches who, having received light and understanding, turn their backs on that light and understanding. There is a, there's a constantly before us, uh, as it were, two paths with regard to truth, light and darkness. And when we turn our backs on light, we choose thereby not to walk down the middle of the road, we choose to walk down the road of darkness. And this, we certainly believe that God has revealed his truth to us. And it's not that God 
has many different views on the same subject, uh, God has one particular view of truth. Uh, God is not schizophrenic. Uh, God does, is not double-minded. God reveals himself clearly in his word. Uh, the problem, just like I said earlier, is that our own sin can cause us not to see and appreciate the natural revelation of God, but it can also cause us not to see and understand, as we should, the special revelation of God in the Bible. And so due to our own sin, our own dullness of hearing, uh, 2 Peter 3.16 also states a couple other reasons that, that people do not uh, understand the truth. They're untaught. They're untaught. It is not necessarily the person who... I've, used, I've heard this used many times for people who would try and support a particular uh, doctrinal view. And they would say, well, the person who just picks up the Word of God and read that particular verse for the very first time, what would they believe? What would they understand? What would they see in that verse? Well, that's not necessarily the way to judge whether it's the right interpretation or not. Your first reading of a passage... And we know that to be the case because many of us have changed from views that we previously held. So we need to become taught by God. Uh, and so to be untaught is a reason why we may not understand. To be unstable, it says in Second Peter 3.16 as well. Men are unstable. They're up and down. Uh, they uh, do uh, not have in their own life a stability in the Lord God. Uh, they're wishy-washy with regard to their, their commitment uh, to Jesus Christ. Uh, and so this can contribute to uh, not understanding uh, passages of Scripture. And we know, fourthly, that uh, the natural man cannot understand the Scripture, but only the spiritual man. Moving on to the second term of communion, or I'm sorry, uh, not the second term of communion, the, uh, the second, which would actually be the sixth uh, attribute of Scripture, moving from the perspicuity of Scripture now to the perpetuity of Scripture. That is, that Scripture cannot be destroyed. The scripture is like the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will endure. It may seem like it's uh, totally eradicated at times, but God will preserve a faithful remnant of his people, even if the church by and large becomes corrupt in like manner. The Lord God will preserve his word. He will protect it. We know that Jesus says in Matthew 5.18 and Luke 16.17 that even the jots and tittles of the law will not pass away till all be fulfilled. We also learn from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 23 through 25 
we find these words being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. There's another proof text if we wanted to use another proof text to demonstrate that it's the word of God which brings the church into being and not vice versa. But then it goes on to say, quoting from from Isaiah chapter 40, for all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. What is the reason? Actually, let me read for you uh, the section from the Confession of Faith as it speaks to the perpetuity of Scripture. This would be chapter 1 and section 8. And listen to what I read and pick out what is the reason given for the perpetuity of Scripture in the Confession of Faith. See if you can find that. It says, The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have right unto an interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. And so, the reason given for the perpetuity of scripture is God's singular care and providence. God controls through his providence all things, but he specifically controls and governs and preserves his own holy word. God has promised it, and he will fulfill it and do it. Here we find in this section of the confession the languages God used in the inspired writings it mentions here Hebrew and Greek as being original tongues but also Aramaic which is a cognate language to Hebrew a related Semitic language to Hebrew uh, was also used in certain portions of the Old Testament very few but to uh, we find, for example, most of chapters 4 through 7 in Ezra are in Aramaic. All of Daniel, chapters 2 through 7, and Jeremiah 10, verse 11. <clears throat> How many Bibles are there? Now, we know there are many different versions of the Bible many translations into various languages of the Bible, 
But there are not many Bibles. There is only one Bible. There is one inspired Bible. And that is the inspired Word of God which was given to the apostles and prophets and which they recorded in the Scripture. Now, we do not possess uh, today any of those original manuscripts that were written by the prophets and apostles. What we possess are thousands of copies in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, and on and on. Quite a few different languages that go back um, to ancient times. We possess many thousands of copies of the Scriptures. If we do not have the originals, how can we be sure we have the Word of God? If we do not have the original documents, how can we be sure that we have the Word of God? Well, the liberals ask that same question. Uh, They certainly want to know what use is an infallible Bible when no one really possesses it today. In other words, no one has that particular, those original documents. So what good is it to say that we have an infallible Bible or to say we have an authoritative Bible, to say we have the Word of God if we don't have the originals? Well, the original inspired documents may be destroyed. They may be gone. But because we believe God has promised to preserve His Word, because we believe God does exist and God is not going to allow His truth to fall by the wayside, He's not going to allow things that He revealed to His people in these times, in uh, in the biblical times, to no longer be possessed by His people today, We believe He has promised until the end of time, until Christ returns, to preserve His Word. The Scripture cannot be broken. Therefore, we believe though we don't have the original documents, God has marvelously, through His providence, preserved that inspired text in the copies which we possess. So we may not have the original documents, but we do have yet the Word of God, the complete Word of God, in the documents which the Lord has preserved. Now, as I said, there are many thousands of these documents or copies. And um, uh, God, we believe, has preserved His Word in what has been known throughout history as the received text. There are isolated text groups or text types coming from parts of the world which do not follow this mainstream of, that we call the received text. Well, we acknowledge that God has kept uh, His promise in this particular mainstream of 
of textual transmission uh, called the received text. And in areas where uh, the uh, particular science known as textual criticism is, is used, you see textual criticism in trying to determine that original text uh, is only uh, good and only proper, and we can only do so because we do believe God did originally inspire the writings and that there was a faithful original to begin with. If there was not a faithful original, then trying to find out what that original said would be impossible. We would have no hope of doing so. But because we believe God did give an inspired original, where there are uh, some differences in some of the manuscripts, and the I might just mention, textual critics have, have noted that the, that the amount of agreement between all of the manuscripts we have uh, available to to us, they documented like 99 and nine tenths percent of agreement. And so the the uh, not to say that there aren't some areas where there are some substantial differences in some manuscripts, but the general um, the the received text in comparing these differences uh, with the the various copies, there is an amazing amount of agreement. And uh, so we have uh, uh, the ability, by God's grace, to be able to to determine where there are those few discrepancies to be able... Most of them relate to word order, you know, one word before another, that type of thing. There's not... Uh, in, uh, in most of the cases... Uh, there's very few that have any uh, substance as far as differences between the manuscripts in, as, as it pertains to substance. <clears throat> we note that also uh, that God, or that the uh, confession of faith speaks of as well that uh, the scriptures ought to be translated into the vulgar tongues of the nations to which the gospel comes. Vulgar simply means the common language, the, the received language of the people. In other words, that there be an English, a faithful English translation, a faithful German translation, and on and on and on. And so this is uh, the teaching uh, of translation. And um, and I, I I have a particular I guess axe to grind that uh, it's far more important to have a faithful translation than a dynamic equivalency. I think that I would much rather be uh, have a, a faithful translation. We use the King James version and struggle a little bit with what at certain times may be difficult to understand with regard to the authorized version. But I'd rather have a faithful one than for somebody to simply give me their idea of what they think it means. I'd rather have something faithful. And I think that that's something in Bible translation that must be, um, must be promoted and uh, taught. <clears throat> the seventh 
The seventh attribute of Scripture is this, the interpretation of Scripture. The interpretation of Scripture. Chapter 1, section 9 of the Confession of Faith says this, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. This uh, particular principle or this uh, science uh, of interpretation is called hermeneutics. That particular word is used in in the New Testament, hermeneuo, and that uh, means you'll find uh, a a phrase like this. They'll say uh, uh, something which being uh, a translator, which being interpreted means this. That word interpreted, that's the the Greek word uh, hermeneuo. And uh, so hermeneutics has to do with the interpretation of Scripture. Now, uh, the confession of faith here uh, gives to us a standard of interpretation. It says that we are to use the Scripture to interpret the Scripture. We're not to use our own uh, mere human Uh, canons of interpretation or standards of interpretation were to allow the Bible to and the Spirit of God speaking in the Word in other places, if something is more obscure in this place, then we search the rest of Scripture in order to understand a more obscure place where God speaks in our judgment at least more clearly. That is the standard that God has given to us. And so we ought not to first and foremost appeal to tradition, to councils, to church, to private interpretations. You see, private interpretations can be just as erroneous as appealing to the church. If our own private interpretation becomes authoritative, that can be just as much in error as if we appeal to the Church of Rome. We are to allow not our own conscience to be Lord of our, of our mind and of our study. We're to allow the Word of God to be the Lord. And so we ought to, again, be those who recognize that the, own, the infallible standard by which we understand the Scripture is the Scripture itself. Now, <clears throat> along with this, <clears throat> I want to simply say that that the, uh, the Scripture is a covenantal book. The Bible is a covenantal book. It is not a dispensational book. And by that I simply mean that what God reveals from the very beginning of time is not meant for people to simply say, well, this pertains to me in this particular age, And what occurred previous, what God revealed previous in his word, does not pertain to me. God has to reveal again everything in this particular age from the previous age that he wants me to to obey and believe 
in, in the age in which I'm living. Uh, that's a dispensational uh, view of the Bible. The covenantal view rather says, for example, uh, the covenant that God made with, uh, with uh, Noah, that we assume that that covenant, that God isn't going to destroy the world uh, by water, uh, again, we assume that to continue to be true. We don't expect God to have to repeat that in subsequent, subsequent uh, periods of time throughout biblical history. We assume that to be true because God said so, unless he says something contrary. The covenant which God made with Abraham, we assume that to be true uh, continuously until God revokes, amends, changes that particular portion of Scripture and the promises that he made to Abraham. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, that's the way the Apostle Paul argues. He says that the covenant which God made with Abraham is still binding upon the new covenant believer. That we in the new covenant are the children of Abraham because we are the children of, of uh, 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 the father of all who believe. He is the father of all who believe. And the promises that were made to him were made to us because the seed of Abraham, Paul says, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we are in Christ, we are the seed of Abraham. And the promises apply to us. And the same thing with the, with the, with the Mosaic Covenant. We assume again that all that God revealed to Moses continues to be binding, continues to be obligatory, continues to have its uh, force uh, in the next uh, uh, period of history. Unless God says, no, it does not. For example, with regard to uh, the, uh, the ceremonial law. Uh, why do we believe the ceremonial law the law dealing with the priests, the sacrifices, the temple and the tabernacle. Why do we believe that no longer binds us under the new covenant? Because God says it does not in the new covenant. But why do we believe the Ten Commandments continue to bind us? Not because God has, re uh, has repeated each of those commandments, uh, in the New Testament, we believe they continue to be binding because God has not repealed them. He's not changed them. And so, this is the way we ought to view the Bible. It's covenantal, not dispensational. A dispensational approach is like, like God revealing himself in one room within a house. You walk out of the room, you close the door, and now you've got a, an altogether different um, set of rules or, or revelation or whatever. You, you live in that particular room for a while and then you close the door and then the people in the next period of history have a, a different set of guidelines, standards, revelation. Uh, whereas the covenantal view is more like something organic, like a flower. And though uh, revelation with Adam may have appeared to be, have been simply a seed. Uh, and then 
as God moves through history, the revelation becomes more full and out from the seed you see a sprout. And from the sprout, then you see uh, a stem and from the stem, a bud and from the bud, a blossom. Well, this is the way God is revealing himself throughout Scripture. Okay, that is how the Bible in its interpretation, covenantally, not dispensationally. Now, we don't want people to, um, as they understand, as they consider the scripture, um, to think that the Bible ought not to have, however, normal rules applied to it. In other words, when we come to the Bible, we don't uh, have this mystical view of the Bible that it has a hundred different meanings for one verse. You know, different levels, spiritual meanings, mystical meanings. Well, it means this at the superficial level, but it means this and this and this and this. Uh, that's We ought to uh, approach the Bible as we do other forms of literature in this sense, that we seek to understand the words which God has chosen to use in their context, in the specific passage, within the book, within the, uh, if it appears in the New Covenant, and within the New Covenant, and then within the entire Scriptures. We try and understand and approach it from a contextual, from a grammatical, from a lexical perspective. Looking at the words, looking at the gr- construction of the grammar, those types of things, we seek to understand the Scripture within all those contexts. And then we, uh, we are able uh, to, uh, to more clearly give an explanation as to what God is saying uh, using that particular uh, format. <clears throat> uh, should the Bible be interpreted literally? Well, yes, the Bible should be interpreted literally. By that I mean as God intended it to be interpreted. Does that mean that everything in the Bible, every phrase, is is to be interpreted uh, literally when Jesus says he's a door, uh, when he's a lamb, uh, that we're to understand that literally? No, we're to understand it figuratively. Uh, we're to understand that uh, that there are many figures of speech, using many symbols. Uh, but we understand what those symbols mean by, again, comparing Scripture with Scripture. The last, the last uh, <clears throat> attribute of Scripture is the judgment of Scripture. And we consider chapter 1, section 10, from the Confession of Faith. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Uh, This attribute of Scripture is 
very, very important for it teaches that Scripture judges all thoughts. Scripture judges all intents. It judges all the statements and propositions of men. In fact, the Scripture judges all men, their actions, everything about them. But on the other hand, the Scripture cannot be judged by any man because it is the Word of God. We seek only to discern and understand, but we do not judge the Scripture. However, the Scripture, God's Word, judges all men because it is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 makes this very clear. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then again in John 12:48, the Lord Jesus said concerning his word, John 12:48, "He that rejecteth, rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day." God's word judges all things, but it is not judged by anyone. <clears throat> and that is why uh, in the Presbyterian form of government, we call the group of elders who gather as a church, uh, as a, as a um, body of elders, we call it a session at the local level. A session. We don't call it a congress. We call it a session because... It is a court. It is a judge who sits. Session means to sit. You, you've heard uh, the, uh, the, uh, this phrase, the court is in session. Uh, that simply means uh, that there is a court going on adjudicating uh, certain cases. Uh, a court is not a legislative body that makes laws. It is a body which interprets the law and applies the law to various circumstances. Whereas a Congress is a legislative body, at least in the, uh, in the uh, United States, which I'm more familiar with, um, uh, or here the, the Parliament uh, would be a, uh, a legislative body. Uh, and it makes laws, it establishes laws, but we don't call uh, the church, uh, the body of elders, a, a congress or a parliament, we call it a uh, court because they are sitting as judges using the constitution of the word of God to judge everything that comes to their attention. <clears throat> Just a couple things, that's all that, that I want to say with regard to the uh, judgment of Scripture. But let me just, uh, a couple concluding remarks. 
just as the Romish church of today appeals to an oral tradition, it's quite interesting the historical parallel between the Romish church uh, in uh, recent history and the uh, rabbinic Judaism of the time of Christ. You see, rabbinic Judaism had their oral tradition just as the Roman Catholic Church has its oral tradition. And if we can discern what Jesus had to say about the rabbinic or the oral tradition of the rabbis, we can, I think, gather from that what Christ would say and what he does say, how he views the oral tradition of the Romish church. You remember in Mark 7, verses 1 through 13, Jesus um, criticized the Jews because they held on to their oral tradition and by that made void or empty the commandments of God. Now, this is no doubt what Paul had in mind when he commanded Timothy and Titus not to give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men, their oral tradition, in Titus 1.14. Milton Terry, in his work, Biblical Hermeneutics, has demonstrated why much of the rabbinic tradition is unreliable. Now, this is a quote from his book on page 615, he says, According to Jewish tradition, Moses received at Sinai, in addition to the Pentateuch, an unwritten oral law, and afterward delivered it over to Joshua. Joshua delivered the same to the elders and they to the prophets, from which it came into the possession of the men of the great synagogue, the last of whom was Simon the Just, who was a contemporary with Alexander the Great, 325 B.C. Simon transmitted it to Antigonus of Soco, and so it was passed onward until it came into possession of the schools of Hillel and Shammai. These schools, especially that of Hillel, sifted and preserved these laws until Rabbi Judah the Holy, about A.D. 200, compiled and codified them in six Sedarim, thenceforth known as the Mishnah. And so, rabbinic Judaism, and that's why you must be very careful about when you're doing studies and you're looking into rabbinic Judaism to try and and corroborate certain things from the Bible, you must be very careful that you don't look and say, well, this is, this is rabbinic Judaism, you know, this must be right. Because much of it is like the Roman Catholic oral tradition. They have their own oral tradition. It doesn't necessarily match up to uh, what the Scripture teaches in the Old Testament. Just as the Jewish oral tradition of the elders made void the truth of God's commandment, as Jesus said, even so does the Romish oral tradition. Now, we do not deny that there was true oral tradition given by the prophets, by Christ, and by the apostles. 
That is, they spoke inspired words given in various uh, and different contexts that has not been recorded in Scripture. For example, in John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 31, uh, verse 30 and 31, it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And then in chapter 21, verse 25, it says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. And so there are many things that Jesus said and did that are not recorded in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit uh, uh, did not include them. Uh, uh, He was selective in giving to the apostles and prophets specifically what he did want to include. What he included are true, they're accurate, they're faithful, but and doesn't mean that those that were not included were not inspired. They were. And uh, the same thing, you know, when you read uh, what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, that short little sermon, um, that's most likely not all that Peter preached. That takes probably about two or three minutes to read through. That wasn't all that Peter said. As you read through the various things in, in the scriptures about uh, sermons that, uh, that the apostles or prophets preached, uh, there probably was much more that they said. But again, the Holy Spirit only included what he wanted to be included in the Word of God. Well, we want to affirm that there was legitimate oral tradition things that were not recorded in the Word of God and yet were spoken, that were inspired. So we do not not deny that. What Jesus Christ denied and what we as Reformed Protestants deny is that oral tradition, listen closely, is that oral tradition can be known once the apostles and prophets are no longer on earth to verify and confirm them. That's what we, along with Christ, because he says that the tradition of the elders had caused the commandments to become null and void. And we would say the same thing, that the tradition of Rome has made void and empty the truth of God. There are no longer apostles and prophets to be able to affirm these particular things. We only know with certainty what God has revealed in his word. And there we stand. And that was the Protestant view of sola scriptura. You find in the New Testament, the Lord himself... He turned people away from the oral tradition of the elders. In Matthew 5, you you continuously see this. You have heard that it was said. What is he talking about? You've heard that it was said. Oral tradition. But I say unto you, Jesus says, I'm giving you what God says. I'm giving you the truth now. You've heard that it was said. This is what came by way of oral tradition. But... This is what I say. So it's not that Jesus is, is 
going back to the Old Testament and pitting the New Testament against the Old Testament, as many people understand that that's what Jesus is doing. No, he's pitting the truth against the rabbinic oral tradition. And how many times do we find this phrase? It is written throughout the New Testament. It is written. Jesus uses it. The apostles use it. It is written. Or this phrase, the scripture saith. And so, Jesus continually affirms the authority of the written word of God. And so, lastly, let me simply say this. Our only infallible standard for faith and life is the scripture. All six terms of communion, we believe, are founded upon and agreeable to God's written word. Thus, we maintain neither our Presbyterian and covenanted forefathers nor ourselves have erected standards that are beside the Word of God or equivalent in authority to the Word of God. We affirm that all of our subordinate standards are agreeable unto Scripture and for that reason they are authoritative and biblical terms of communion because they are founded upon and agreeable to the Scripture, not because of the church fathers being infallible, inspired, or whatever, but because they're agreeable to the Scripture. All right, we'll stop there this evening. Are there any questions uh, that have come to your mind? Anything that you would like to ask uh, in... uh, response to the lecture this evening. Again, you're if you don't ask a question publicly that certainly doesn't keep you from asking one privately or several privately. So um, if you uh, are not wanting to ask a question right now, that's no problem. If one comes up later, you certainly may feel free to do so at that time. All right. Thanks for your attention. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, 
abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.